0: Essentially what you're saying is that we have artificially created this housing cost being a lot higher in California.
1: Economists who study the matter have estimated we have about three and a half million too few homes in this state relative to the population and the family growth. We're just swimming in this problem and yet we can barely build a hundred thousand a year and in that context you had almost fifty thousand of those units had to contend with a lawsuit. What are these lawsuits and how would they affect the cost? and affordability of housing. The CEQA law allows just about any third party, environmental groups, neighbors who don't want to see something new built in their area, don't want the neighborhood to change, unions who would like to stop your project unless it's built with union labor. They'll just sue under CEQA and say, we don't think your environmental report is adequate. And that triggers what is often years and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in litigation before you can actually get a permit to build those homes. My guest today is Larry Salzman,
0: Director of Litigation at Pacific Legal Foundation.
1: There are untold numbers of houses, property owners, landowners, who just don't even try because they can't afford to overcome uh, the risk of the lawsuits that will come if they try to get a building permit. It's
0: estimated that half of new homes that are built in California face a lawsuit. Have the laws to build new housing in California become overly complicated? Continue watching for an insider's perspective. I'm Siamak Korami. welcome to California Insider.
1: Thank you for having me, it's good to be here.
0: We want to talk to you about housing costs in California. Yeah. Um, they're much higher than the national average. And uh, I, I saw some report that said half of the new homes that were built in 2020, um, Now it's 2022, but this is the data from 2020. Half of them were sued. They were involved in lawsuits. Can you tell us more about why this is happening in California?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. California is really ground zero, I think, for the affordability crisis for housing. It's so much worse in California than it is in most places in America. And a primary cause is the legal problems you have in just trying to build anything. You're right about that in 2020 the study that I saw that was done, probably the same one, by um, a very experienced lawyer, Jennifer Hernandez, at uh, a firm called Holland and Knight. She's probably the expert in California on a law called CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, and she investigated how is this law used and how is it stymieing the production of housing and uh, the report that she had was the one that indicated that about half of all homes built in California in 2020 had to contend or overcome a lawsuit involving that law. And we can talk a little bit about CEQA. Uh, My law firm, Pacific Legal Foundation, are in the business of advancing property rights. We're a public interest law firm. And so we deal with many, many lawsuits where we're suing the government to try to make it easier to build houses.
0: Can you explain what does it mean when this uh, uh Data like this comes out. Yeah. What are these lawsuits and how would they affect the cost and yeah. affordability of housing?
1: Well, first, this is shocking. I think we build a little over 100,000 new homes in California every year, and that's in the context of 20 or 30 years of not building enough homes every single year. So, uh, the government in California, people who, economists who study the matter, have estimated we have about three and a half million too few homes in this state relative to the population and the family growth. So we're just uh, s- swimming in this problem and yet we can barely build 100,000 a year and in that context, you had almost 50,000 of those units had to contend with a lawsuit. And this, we can talk about many other legal challenges about building housing, but I'll just stick with CEQA for a moment. So the Quali- uh, California Environmental Quality Act was passed in the 1970s and the idea at the time was an environmental movement wanted to protect wilderness or environmentally sensitive habitat area. Over the years, the law has become increasingly complicated so that if you want to build something, single-family home, more likely uh, a project, you know, a 20-home subdivision, for instance, maybe a 5,000-home subdivision, right, if there's a lot of vacant land, you have to uh, get some kind of declaration from the government that this is not going to cause an environmental problem. Now, with a single-family home, it's usually a fairly simple matter, but it, it does require hearings and evidence and time uh, on the permitting process. If it's something like a subdivision, you're going to have to have an environmental impact report prepared. This has become a cottage industry where consultants will show up and say, well, I can help you with that. It'll cost $10,000, 100000 you know, a big project, maybe a million dollars to provide these environmental impact reports. You file them with the government. And the CEQA law allows just about any third party, environmental groups, neighbors who don't want to see something new built in their area, don't want the neighborhood to change, uh, unions who would like to stop your project unless it is used, unless it's built with union labor, they'll just sue under CEQA and say, we don't think your environmental, ad- environmental report is adequate, go redo it, or we're gonna challenge elements of it, or we're gonna block your permits. And that triggers what is often years and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in litigation before you can actually get a permit to build those homes. And so when we're talking about 50,000 or half of the homes challenged or contested in our sequel, that's what we mean is that, you know, very minor 100,000 homes that were built, almost 50,000 of them had to deal with the fact that somebody sued them to stop them from being built. And ultimately those 50,000 prevailed. But there are untold numbers of houses, property owners, landowners, who just don't even try because they can't afford to overcome uh, the risk of the lawsuits that will come if they try to get a building permit. So can anybody sue you? Is that- Just under CEQA, just about anyone. And that's why the law is so bad. I mean, I think everybody at this point recognizes. The California Supreme Court, for instance, uh, I'm sorry, the First District Court of Appeals, so the Court of Appeals that sits in the San Francisco area, had an opinion about a uh, project in um, the Tiburon area, so that's like a little bit uh, near San Francisco, a suburb of San Francisco. There, a property owner has the last large vacant parcel that could be used for homes. In the 1980s, he applied for permits and settled with the city uh town that they could build about 40 homes there i think it was 38 or something like that they still haven't been built and they haven't been built because it's continuous lawsuits over and over from environmental groups uh, labor groups the neighbors who would prefer that that area remain vacant to their benefit at the landowner's expense we're talking about nearly 40 years of sequel lawsuits continuing and the first district court of appeals got that case and said, no, no, finally, this is enough. You've got to issue these permits soon. And they went through a long discussion that this is not what Sequel was originally intended to do. It's become a a tool for NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard type advocates who just don't want to see anything built, or environmental groups who don't want to see anything built, to abuse this law at the expense of people who need homes, people who can't otherwise afford homes. So there's recognition that this has gone awry. But for all these 40 years, Several governors in a row have tried to reform CEQA, and they just have not had the horsepower politically to get it through the legislature, which is of course dominated in California by one party, and it becomes very hard to, to move things like this.
0: Inflation continues to be a plague on our economy, our families, and our savings. And the responsible spending from the government just continues to exasperate the problem. This year, we witness almost every kind of negative economic record, from empty grocery store shelves to 40-year high inflation. Don't let your savings weather away. Hedge against inflation with gold from Birch Gold. Visit birchgold.com California for your free info kit on diversifying into gold. Plus when you do it this month by Black Friday, get a free gold bar with every purchase that you make by December 22. With almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metal IRAs, Birch Gold can help you. Don't allow the bad government policies to devalue your savings. Visit birchgold.com California and claim your free info kit from Birch Gold. Again, you can own physical gold and silver in a tax shelter retirement account, and Birchgold Gold will help you do it. Once again, visit birchgold.com California to claim your free info kit on gold and ensure your eligibility for a free gold bar with every purchase. Secure your future with gold. Do it today. So when you mention they get sued, these projects, yeah. how much is the legal fees?
1: Who, how, how does it work? Who yeah. pays for that? Oh, the landowners usually end up paying. So you know, on the one side, you're getting sued by either a neighborhood association or, or sometimes by a local government or sometimes by an environmental group. Now, they presumably have taxpayer money or donor money that is being used to block the permits. But on the other side is the landowner or the builder who's just trying to get something done, trying to put their land into productive use and they're on the hook for those fees. They're having to hire their lawyers year after year after year, and I've seen bills that go well into the millions for these lawsuits, but uh, you know, I think that uh, report that you had started out mentioning, the one about the 2020, I think it estimated something like three or $400,000 in fees as a typical cost to overcome these lawsuits. So it's not trivial, and it, it in many cases just scares people away from even putting their land into productive use because they don't want to go forward with permits that are going to be challenged.
0: So does that show up in the cost of housing? Of do course. We, do we pay for <laughs> those lawsuits yeah. as we buy a home? Yeah. Have we paid some legal fees for funding
1: this? A- absolutely. We've paid legal fees that are overcoming the the lawsuits by third parties to stop the development. But not only that, when you talk about what's driving up the cost of housing, it, it's several different things. So CEQA is just one thing that we've talked about so far. But you have uh, exclusionary zoning ordinances from cities all around uh, California where they just will say, well you can build but you can only build one house per acre or one house per five acres, you know, large lot zoning like that. So where you might have been able to build ten homes, now you can only build one. And now what is the cost of that one home at the end? If you have the same amount of land going to one home instead of ten, it's going to be much higher. What's the cost of land if in order to get through the zoning process you have to have two, three years and maybe lawsuits challenging uh, the, the zoning designation, which frequently happens, just like CEQA. You have third parties, you have environmental groups, you have city governments that will try to block the permits from being issued. And so all of those things add to the cost of housing. You have things, what they call inclusionary zoning ordinances now, which is a kind of state or local mandate where they say, you we'll give you your permit to build what you want to build, but only if 20% of it is subsidized and made available at a much lower cost, lower than the cost of construction, lower than the market rate cost. What happens in that case if you've got a 10-unit project that has to have, say, two or three units that are subsidized? Well, the other seven units, the price mm-hmm. gets rais- risen in order to subsidize those units, making it even less affordable. I can give you an example of that. I had a case in uh, West Hollywood, California, a couple years ago, where there was a very old homes, two homes on two lots, very large lots. The owners bought those lots they wanted to knock down the homes and on top of it put uh, an eight or ten unit uh, building which was consistent with the neighborhood you know there were other apartment buildings in the area there were other condo this was a condo but there were other multi-family units in the neighborhood but some of the neighbors on the street didn't like it the city uh, sort of listened to them and also realized that they had an opportunity here they've got the property owner over a barrel right he's now spent a lot of money to buy these lots he has a plan that under the zoning ordinances was permissible to build a larger unit. His, the economics of the project penciled out based on these 10 units, but uh, the city kind of takes advantage of that. and They say, well, he's probably going to give up something, right? Like, he, if, he, if he doesn't get anything, he's going to have a total wipeout economically. So we can ask for more than maybe we're entitled to in order to approve these permits. And so they sa- said to him, we'll let you have your permits to build the 10 units. if." three of the units are subsidized and made low income. And ultimately, he, he we sued, we lost. Uh, ultimately, he um, went forward with the project. The consequence was he said, yeah, we'll subsidize these units, but then the other units have to cost more, and somebody has to pay for that.
0: So essentially, because some units in the projects, they have to be,
1: or they're kind of allocated to affordable housing at a lower price, the other ones will be Drives more. the cost of the rest of them available and makes housing less affordable for everyone else and then I'll just keep talking about the kinds of detriments to housing affordability you also have not just exclusionary zoning and inclusionary zoning ordinances like I've just discussed the CEQA lawsuits but you also have mandates that are increasing from in the state so you have some communities now uh, including some state laws that are discouraging for instance natural gas hookups for uh, homes or requiring expensive solar Uh, rather than natural gas. It's all driving up the cost and you know people can say well it's only adding say $20,000 to the cost of the home or maybe there's a cost improvement in your energy costs say over the next 20 years or something but incrementally if you add them up you're talking about six-figure additions to every home being built in California based on the mandates that are coming down for either the state or the local governments.
0: So you're mentioning that the, the regulation and we, we just had the solar mandate you have mm-hmm. to put solar on your roof you're mentioning that this is adding to the cost of housing right and we're doing more and more of these kind of regulations at the same time we're very desperate to lower the cost of housing right how, how does this work in the legislative body
1: yeah, I, I think it's always a recipe for disaster when the state mandates things as a one size fits all. There are certain parts of the state, if you live in the Central Valley for instance, it might be quite economically rational to have solar on your roof and you'll pay for that because it's economically rational. But when they mandate it to everyone, it drives up the cost because now you have uh, a crunch. Uh, you know, Too much demand for solar and the solar producers, the people who install it, start raising their prices, it raises raise the cost of it. In a lot of places, it's not actually as feasible. We have more cloud cover. It doesn't actually produce the, the benefits that are alleged. So anytime you have a state mandating something, it's telling you that the market doesn't find it rational to provide it, and we need to get the government out of the business of mandating things that we don't need or we don't want or we don't find based on our own judgment to be rational economic calculations.
0: Now, I've, I've interviewed some people that are covering the state and they've mentioned to me that sometimes in this regulatory process, certain special interest groups, they sure. make money from these regulations. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So it looks like we're mandating yeah. for certain things because yeah. certain groups will make money from it. Meanwhile, this is driving the cost of housing higher.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's pure economic interest. Like you say, uh, people lobby because they want to get the government to mandate something that people have to buy from them, right? And that certainly is the case in the solar industry. But sometimes it's ideological. And so you think of uh, the environmental groups want just less things to be built. And so they're advocating for laws or more control, say, by organizations like the california coastal commission more layers of review before you can build anything if you live on the coast for instance um, i think it's worth talking about the california coastal commission because it's maybe one of the most abusive agencies in terms of property rights and stopping building from happening you get not only do you have to get a local government permit that might take years that might be subject to these lawsuits whether it's sequa or just some other kind of lawsuit to stop the permit once you finally get that permit then it can be appealed to the California Coastal Commission. And then you're in for more years of litigation just to build a single home. Sometimes just to build a single addition to your home because you've added somebody to your family. California has this regulatory environment where they've empowered state agencies and local governments to block the production of housing. And that's really driving up the cost.
0: And do these same groups want to lower housing costs or do they
1: like not care? Uh, I think they're mostly ignorant, if I can you know, be generous about it. It, it. To some degree, they'd want fewer homes to be built, and they'll do that by any means possible. I don't know that they want lower uh, housing costs in the aggregate, because when you think about, there are sort of, say tenants' rights organizations that say they want lower cost of housing, but what's their solution? They promote rent control. They promote inclusionary zoning. They promote uh, land-use laws that discourage single-family homes from being built. All those things are leading to a net reduction in the number of homes and an increase in the in price of those homes that are being built. So what is it that they really want? What they, what they seem to want is political control. They want uh, rent control, so they want you know, less money going to landlords and maybe to the favor of, of tenants. They want to control the kinds of housing that are built. You can build only this kind of housing, but not that other kinds of housing, because we politically have deemed this kind of housing appropriate for low-income housing. So what they want is political control. They say they want it for the benefit ultimately of lower housing costs, but the policy they're promoting are completely irrational with respect to lowering housing costs.
0: So the policies that we're promoting in California as a whole, it's kind of driving.
1: Totally counteractive. The only things I've seen that are bright spots are the the laws that have made it easier to build accessory dwelling units. That's certainly been a benefit. I understand there's been 10,000 or more units of those built in the past couple years as a result of uh, relaxing regulations and that was a positive. And I think the laws that have been recently enacted that allow you to split lots, so take one lot and make it into two more easily, that's uh, SB 10. uh, That might have a positive effect. SB 9 is that law that um, Uh, allows you to build higher density in certain single family neighborhoods that might have a positive effect. But practically, uh, all those laws are then subject to blocking by the third parties that sue. And I doubt much is actually gonna come out of them.
0: And those laws, they actually kind of, they are gonna change an existing neighborhood, right? But we are not allowing new neighborhoods to be created.
1: I think that's a very good point. Like all the political opposition, when I say I have some sympathy for SB 9 and 10, I'll get a lot of criticism by people who say, look, this is crazy, Like, I like my neighborhood, I don't want it to change. It actually doesn't have to change because there's a ton of vacant land where we could build a whole additional neighborhood that looks just like the one that I live in and enjoy. And I am 100% supportive of that, I completely agree. I think these other laws where they've tried to change existing neighborhoods to provide uh, more housing, okay, it's getting more housing, but that's not the only way to do it, and it's probably not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is much greater freedom in land use. Let's unleash all that vacant land that is now subject to lawsuits under CEQA, even federal lawsuits, lawsuits under the Endangered Species Act or the Clean Water Act is another way in which third parties can sue to block these permits. This is what's keeping uh, millions of acres of undeveloped land in California off the table. And I would much prefer to see you know, a 50,000-unit uh, city built in some area where it's not currently existing, where people can enjoy the same kind of suburban lifestyles that people who now enjoy them have had in California since the 1950s and 60s and 70s. You just can't do it, and you can't do it because of the regulation at the state level.
0: So the governor made a really big push, and, and I think made a lot of cities upset by mm-hmm. making them zone for this. Yeah number of units the yeah. thousands of units he wanted to build but he wasn't able to do that and he had to lower the numbers yeah. but do you think it's it's a lot harder to deal with Sequoia and these other regulatory how does that work compared yeah. to doing this
1: well one thing you see with Sequoia, you know it was originally conceived as something to sort of preserve wilderness and, and environmentally sensitive habitat it is overwhelmingly like 90 plus percent of the lawsuits are actually attacking building permits in infill development areas. So what you're seeing is it's mostly being used by existing residents to stop uh, new things being built in their area. That's unfortunate. What I would really encourage people to do, I understand the upset people have when they don't want their neighborhood changed. Let's channel that into something positive. Let's go to the state, let's go to the legislature, let's go to your local government and say, great, you want more housing to be built? We don't mind more housing being built. Why don't you let it be built in all the places that are off limits in California uh, because of the land use laws or the California Department of uh, the Environment or because of some of the federal legislation that exists that makes it harder to build in vacant areas. Let's promote uh, putting all that vacant land into productive use. I would be 100% supportive of that. And I wish the people that would prefer things not be changed in their neighborhood, turn that into something positive and have solutions for, then how do we let things be really built uh, nearby and elsewhere.
0: Now you mentioned the zoning, and, yeah. and it's fascinating to me that people are moving from California to Nevada yeah. and, and other states. The fascinating part is is looking at the inland. Some people say, yeah. okay, we have limited real estate here by the ocean, right. you know, it's all built out. Right. But when you go inland, we've, we've noticed that some people are moving out of Bakersfield or yeah. out of San Bernardino County to go to Nevada or Arizona to, right. to because the housing cost is half what it is there yeah can you tell us more why we are we have a lot of land in these counties what's what's the reason can you explain
1: we have a lot of land i mean there in some areas not many but some areas it's a question of water so you know you can't build if you don't have the water supply and in some other states like nevada they don't have water there either but they have an easier time getting it from the Colorado River, they have an easier time uh, apportioning it among the states. So there's some natural limits to this, but almost all the limits are regulatory. If you look in these inland counties, it's still the same problem. Just try to build, say, a 1,000 homes on a big subdivision. That's the kind of project the 1960s and 1970s in California where, when California was still considered desirable land of opportunity, people would come here to get a new start because actually it was relatively inexpensive and the weather was beautiful. Today, you can't build anything like that. There there are no projects, a thousand, five thousand homes being approved anywhere in California. A couple of Central Valley projects I think over the last ten years I can remember with a lot of these very expensive mandates put on them, but you can't do it and you can't do it because of the, the regulation. There's very restrictive land use regulation even in these places where the land is wide open. If you start talking to them about what do I need to do it? As soon as you do it, you can expect uh, your costs to rise because of the mandates and you can expect to get sued by just about everyone.
0: Can you explain more about the mandates as well? So I've heard that you, you have to pay per mile. There's a per mile tax if you're building in these areas. It's not
1: precisely a per mile tax, although uh, maybe what you're talking about are certain exaction fees that maybe look like that. But what there is under both CEQA and some other laws is they analyze your uh, the environmental impact of a project, like a home building project, commute. for what they call vehicle miles traveled and uh, VMT. Exaction fees, maybe, is what you've heard about. So in some places, in order to get that building permit, they're going to calculate what they think your impact is on uh, greenhouse emissions or on future road construction needs, and they will just charge that as a fee as part of the permit. And sometimes those fees rise to the point where it just becomes unfeasible to build. Uh, In other cases, the vehicle miles traveled becomes an element of the environmental consideration in your environmental impact report. And that is a main source of litigation under CEQA, where environmental groups, or really anybody who wants to take advantage of CEQA to get something from the developer, uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute with respect to unions. But they'll look at that vehicle miles traveled, and they say, well, we don't think your analysis here is adequate. We think maybe you've underestimated, or maybe you've miscalculated. Go do it again at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars, the cost of a lot of legal fees. So they use this vehicle miles traveled Uh, statistic to stop projects block projects it's my view it's all nonsense when you think about what's actually causing the the kinds of emissions or pollution or traffic that we should be concerned about more density having more mixed use having more of these projects go forward would in the long term uh, benefit all of that it's the it's the zoning that has gotten so careful to separate uses so that you can't live anywhere near you where you work That's what's creating all the traffic. That's what's creating all the emissions problems. If you allowed more mixed-use projects to go forward, just the kinds of projects that tend to get sued under CEQA, things would actually get better, not worse. But it's a very myopic view of what's going to happen with this particular house being located in this location, how many miles per day are you going to commute back and forth to work it's uh, in my opinion it's all being abused and it's driving up the cost of housing
0: do people that sue do they make money from the lawsuits if they win
1: sure i mean the the lawyers make money and with uh many of these lawsuits which you can get is are called fee shifting in the california courts. so if the environmental group prevails uh, they can petition the court to have their fees paid and they get paid by the builder or the developer And so, uh, (laughs) you can imagine that just incentivizes more of these suits, it takes the risk out of the suits for the people who would block the projects. And it's very
0: risky for people that want to do this kind of project. Exactly.
1: And that's why you have people, you know, sometimes I'm I'm told or I hear when I make these kind of criticisms about CEQA, I hear, well, it's really only uh, less than 10% of the projects that are. Bound up in these sort of really long-lasting lawsuits that are they're expensive. Most projects, after a few uh, layers of review, end up getting approved, and that may be so. But sometimes that's years of delay. But the projects that get stymied are a kind of, um, you know, flare to the developers who have the vacant land or who might consider building. They don't want to be one of those few projects that end up being uh, wasting five, seven, ten. In the case of that Tiburon project I mentioned, forty years in litigation and have a, a complete bankruptcy of their company, so they just step aside. They just say, well, I'm not building I'm not building in this county, I'm not building in this town, I'm not building in California, I'll go to Texas, I'll go to Nevada, I'll go to Arizona, where the land use laws are more favorable to uh, population growth.
0: You're mentioning all of this, and it seems like a lot of these regulatory issues are causing the, the housing costs be higher, but yeah. the California government is trying desperately <laughs> to build housing. And they're trying to push the cities to yeah. to zone for uh, more housing and also right. they, they, they we just passed this sb9 and sb10 law where they want to bring a lot of density they, they want to yeah. allow people to put build in their backyards another unit yeah how's that going to work
1: well i have some sympathy with that with the state wanting to uh, press local governments to approve more building permits and i, I think the argument is simple it's that Uh, land use in America is mostly a local matter. Most permits are locally approved, but all uh, local governments hold their power to regulate land use under the authority of the state. And so if the state wants to preempt certain local regulations to say we should be more liberal about allowing more housing, or what I think is happening more often is they look at a city and they say, we don't think you are denying building permits for legitimate reasons of public health or safety or traffic. We actually think what you're doing is uh, Catering to your existing population who would prefer, uh, you know, more open space or uh, the neighborhood to stay the same at the expense of other residents who would like to move there. We don't think that's a fair way to use your zoning power, and so they're putting some pressure there. I understand that. Unfortunately, what you get when you, anytime the state comes involved is you tend to get these sort of one size fits all solutions. And so, at the one hand, you're saying they're saying to city governments, approve more housing, uh, approve more permits. Uh, don't be so restrictive about allowing private investors to build things on their own land. On the other hand, they're saying, but we'd prefer it if you only allow the things we want you to build to be built. So, you know, low income, affordable housing, certain kinds of structures that are, you know, higher density uh, apartments or condos. And naturally that upsets the local residents and you create this um, completely divisive political system where the state is trying to push things uh, as a one size solution fits all on local governments, and the local governments responding to the local residents or sort of resisting that, it's really not that helpful. I think what we need is for governments all level to just get out of the way, let private investors using their own money and their own land meet the market demand for increased housing. And I'd like to see a, a lot more of that.
0: Do you think it would ever get there where the leaders will look at this whole equation and? analyze it and say okay you know these are the places where we have problems or do you think it's nobody's looking at the whole big picture
1: I uh, there are some hopeful signs you know I, if I look at say Los Angeles County uh, or maybe the city of Los Angeles say if you look back in the 1660s, uh, the la- latest report that I saw was that the zoning ordinances there were zoned to allow about 10 million residential units in the city total that's like the land capacity based on the lo- zoning ordinances in the 1960s and Between then and say the 1980s, there was a lot of political pressure from local residents to ratchet down the number of homes that could be built so that the total capacity based on the existing ordinances today is something like four to five million units. So they actually wiped out half the productive capacity of their land through laws. And you see Los Angeles, for instance, collaborating to some degree with the state to say, you know what, let's look to see where we can, where things are... uh, built up and it might make sense to knock old things down and put higher density things up. Let's allow that to happen. So they are liberalizing some of their laws and I think it's good for them and it's good for the people who live there and it probably will have a positive effect on housing. You can see uh, cities like San Diego is very favorable toward uh, what they call accessory dwelling units. And uh, I'll just tell a story about my own family there. My mother owns a home in uh, North County, San Diego. She has a half acre lot, so it's a fairly large lot. And my brother wanted to stay in California instead of moving to another state because of the cost of housing. Uh, My mom's getting older, so having her son live on her property is a nice thing. And because San Diego had liberalized its standards for building accessory dwelling units, it was relatively easy for her to get a permit and less costly than it might have been, say, five years ago for her to build that. And now they live in two units on her land. It's uh, great, I mean, it keeps that family together. It keeps her safer as she ages. It keeps my brother uh, better in terms of his economics. The neighbors didn't seem to mind there because they built a unit that looked you know, like the existing neighborhood. And I think part of that was uh, San Diego made it easier to get permits to do that. So there's some optimism, but it's a big problem when you when you look at, if we can't reform CEQA, if we can't get people to have a mindset that um, more housing is good for the community as opposed to a threat to the community uh, it doesn't look like it'll get better
0: do you think the average californians don't want housing don't want more more housing here
1: i don't think that i i think it's a very i think most people like the home they live in and they don't want to see their neighborhood changed i can understand that but when you talk to people a little more in depth about well look you have friends who've moved out of state You have older people, your grandchildren, have moved out of state to pursue other jobs because they can live an independent life in another state. They're not spending 50% of their income on housing. I think more than something like two-thirds of people in California are paying nearly 30% uh, of their income on housing, uh, of people who have housing costs. There are some people like retirees who've paid off their mortgages, but it's a very high percentage of their income in California. When you start talking to them about that, I think that becomes a subject in their backyard barbecues and they realize, you know, maybe we should be thoughtful about finding ways to have more homes built, because we don't want our grandkids to move. We don't want our children to have a lifestyle that are less than our own because all their money's going to housing costs. So I think people are becoming more aware because the problem is getting so severe.
0: Now do you think average Californians understand these laws, the CEQA and the, the you know, and...
1: They don't. <laughs> they, they don't. I think they, when I read things in the press, uh, what I hear is, well, we would just have more houses if it weren't for greedy developers. Uh, Developers are not more greedy in California than they are in Arizona or Texas or Pennsylvania, but there the cost of housing is much closer to the cost of producing the housing, You know the labor and materials cost. What is a problem here in California is overwhelming sections of the state are just off limits for getting building permits. And so you have this artificial shortage on the supply of housing. It's artificial because it's completely a function of regulation. And I fear that most Californians don't recognize that. And so they don't know that they can change this situation by maybe electing different people or promoting different policies. They just don't know. Or
0: asking level. the elected officials to change their...
1: Their attitude, yeah. Uh, but they don't know. They, they just see the cost of housing high. They find it oppressive. They complain about California. They move away. They don't actually know, I don't think, that the primary cause is land use regulation.
0: So, essentially what you're saying is that we have artificially created this, this yes. uh, housing cost being a lot higher in California, yeah. at least in places where there is not by the ocean. And
1: yeah. Uh, housing costs will go down if we build more of it, and we're not building more of it because the regulation exists. So let's work together to simplify land use regulations everywhere in California where they can't be eliminated, and we'll see much more housing and lower prices.
0: Do you have any other thoughts for our audience?
1: Well, I think, that, um, I, I think that there is hope in California if we advocate for the right policies, which is if we want to drive down the cost of housing, we need to build a lot more housing. The primary reason why we're not building a lot more housing is regulation. And our local officials can hear that from us, to say, look, we want you to make it easier to build the kinds of housing that we want to live in here in California.
0: Larry Salzman, Director of Leducation at Pacific Legal Foundation. It was great to have you on
1: California Insider. It's been a pleasure to be with you, thank you.